Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading through the NYRB classics. I'm Kasia. I'm Dylan. Our book this week is Summer Cooking by Elizabeth David, originally published in 1955. For the great English food writer Elizabeth David, summer fare means neither tepid nor timid. Her stress is always on fresh, seasonal food, recipes that can be quickly prepared and slowly savored, divided into sections such as soup, poultry, and game, vegetables, and dessert. Her classic includes an overview of herbs. Spoiler alert, she's not that much of a fan of them. As well as chapters on impromptu cooking for holidays and picnics. Chock-a-block with both invaluable instruction and tart rejoinders to the palate and the overblown, summer cooking is a witty, precise companion for feasting in the warmer months. I feel like the blurb writer really got into this one. Yeah. I feel like I can tell when they're actually excited versus when they're kind of faking it. And we are joined by writer and critic Valerie Stivers. She writes the Paris Review's Eat Your Words column, which cooks meals inspired by literature. Welcome, Valerie. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, guys. Thank you. We wanted to start off a little bit talking about how your column began. Like, what got you interested in cooking, and especially with the writing that came with it? Well, I'm Valerie Stivers, and I write a food column for the Paris Review called Eat Your Words, where I cook from classic literature, which means that I take any novel or sometimes poetry that has, or in this case, we're, we're cooking from a cookbook, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So I think any, I, I usually take a work of fiction that has food in it and where food expresses in some way an important theme of the book, which when you have a great book and there's something on the page, it usually does relate to the themes of the book in some way. So mm-hmm. food has turned out to be an incredibly interesting and fruitful way to explore these great books. So what I do is I take a book that I like that has food in it, and then I develop recipes and try them and take pictures and write an essay about the whole process. And it goes up on the Paris Review. So I've been doing that for about six years at this point, which is totally crazy. And um, yeah, and it started out a long time ago. My editor was Nadia Spiegelman, and I had pitched her the idea that maybe she she used to do these sort of short runs where someone would write a essay every week about a topic for maybe two months mm. um, and then it would be over. And I said, how about I cook from Google for eight weeks because Google is just full of food <laughs> and I love Google. And she said, well, that's fantastic, but maybe instead of all Google, do you think you can find seven other books with food in them? Which... Mm. Now, looking back on it is really funny because, I mean, you can find books with food in them forever. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I said, yeah, I think I can find a few more. And so that's how it started. Gotcha. Has writing the column changed how you read books? Do you pay more attention to the food than you did previously? Yes, completely. And I mean, it's it's basically silly. I mean, I at this point, I also review books for a magazine called Compact. So I now my reading is a little bit more diverse, but for most of the life of this column, I've really only been able to read for the column because oh, wow. you know, I'll usually read, often I'll read more than one book of the writer's work and then I'll read a biography or I'll read supplementary history or something and it just consumes all my reading time. So, you know, I used to read a lot of science fiction. I used to read a lot of history. I used to read a lot more like indie and small press books than I do now. And I basically have just totally shifted to classics looking for food content. And I 
always notice the food on the page. I never miss it. <laughs> <laughs> has there been a certain meal that you cooked that you that is maybe the one that stuck in your mind the most or is like your favorite that you made? Well, I think it probably changes. I mean, I think my answer to that sort of changes from time to time. But mm-hmm. um, I was actually just talking about my Richard Brodigan meal mm. last night. Because, I mean, since since my early 20s, I had loved Richard Brodigan. And I used to, like, I mean, in no serious way do graffiti, but I used to do, like, little graffiti around New York City where I would write in watermelon sugar on things. <laughs> <laughs> we have to, like, excavate that, see if it's still around. <laughs> very, very, very minorly. So, I mean, he was always just a huge thing for me. And um, I did a Brodigan menu where I cooked three different salads with watermelon. And uh, I was just reflecting about that last night and thinking how good those salads were and how great that column looked. So that that's one that springs to mind. Awesome. That's a fun one, too. Mm-hmm. Is this the first time that you cooked from a cookbook? Yes, yes. Okay. In, uh, you know, we used to have a stricter policy on what counted. I mean, the only, the real defining limit of the column is that for something, you know, I'm cooking from the classics and we early on decided to define a classic as a book that has stood the test of time in the sense that it survived its writer's death. So mm-hmm. I don't, and that also protects us from doing new releases and from seeming like, you know, PRE for anyone. And, uh, sure, sure. you know, it was, it was a great decision for a lot of reasons. So it's always been that, but I think we have lately sort of just gotten more creative about it. It could be nonfiction. It could be a cookbook. It, it, it can be different things than, than what it started out as. I mean, I think being part of NYRB made uh, summer cooking literary enough to be included in this, in this project. Gotcha. Gotcha. And you do, you do always bring an unexpected vision of food into the books. I'm always surprised by the angle that you take to it. Oh, that's great. Thank you. So we usually start out to talk a little bit about the author's background. Mm -hmm. And I know that you did read a biography of David in preparation for your column. Mm -hmm. But just for the listeners, Elizabeth David's life might be called a seven-course meal with intense periods of starvation mixed in. She was born to an upper-class English family in 1913 and suffered the meals that went along with it. Always hungry for new horizons, she traveled throughout France, Italy, Greece, and Egypt during World War II. And despite her, you know, comparatively well-off circumstances, she was not exempt from the fear and deprivation of that time. In the late 1940s, she began publishing articles and books devoted to food and steadily became, and I think still is to this day, one of the now canonical food writers, not just in in England, but maybe throughout the English-speaking world. What stood out about her life to you when reading her biography or reading the book and then preparing the meal? Well, uh, you just put that all so well. Um, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Very well done. You know, what stood out to me was that when you put her life in that sort of overarching and exciting sounding way, and when you see that, oh, she was familiar with all these cuisines, and she was in Europe, and she was in the Mediterranean, and she was in Egypt during, uh, in Cairo during the war, it has a glamorous and adventurous sound to it. And um, mm-hmm. when I read the book, the thing that most surprised me was how incredibly traumatic the early months of the war were for her. 
you know, I mean, it's, it's sort of easy to be judgmental and to be like, what the heck were, were they doing? But she was with her boyfriend, lover, and they had decided to take a sailboat and sail around. And they, you know, departed England on their sailboat on the eve of World War II, basically, and um, were bumming around in France and then things started to like heat up. And I mean, it all, if you're not 20, if you're not young and, and dumb, uh, all of this, and I, you know, and it also was a different time. I mean, news probably traveled differently, but um, yeah. they, they were in a risky and dangerous situation and it very easily could have ended much worse than it did, but they did end up getting arrested in Italy and spent a couple of months, which doesn't sound long, but it's, long if you're starving um they spent a couple months locked up and hungry and very scared and um the boyfriend lover that she was with at that time they were very good friends and they ended up breaking up later and at one point he wanted to come visit her in cairo and she said i can't see you i just can't see anyone from that time like the fear and pain and trauma that she experienced was so great that she i don't know if she ever saw him in person again but she certainly couldn't see him then so that was just sort of revelatory to me in terms of really trying to imagine putting yourself in the person's shoes and seeing that, oh, they were fine. You're not necessarily fine um, after undergoing an experience mm. like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting how in those years abroad, she, you know, she seemed to really fall in love with food and all of the diversity of food and different cuisines from around different parts of Europe, but then there's this darker side to it where she also understood what the lack of food might mean for a person. Right. Well, I mean, I think she had, she had met Norman Douglas, who was a great influence on her. Um, and I actually am not sure perfectly clear who he was as a writer, but he was a, an important older writer and he influenced her. So she had had inspiration in terms of food before he was uh, at a time when most people were not gourmands he was very mm-hmm. into food and eating and told her tricks as to how to eat well in a restaurant and you know that was somebody who supported her interest in it but as far as I gathered from reading the biography her really it, like it all really started to fall into place after she had escaped Italy when she was on the Greek islands and First of all, again, they had food to eat that wasn't prison food, basically, and it was peasant food. It was very, very simple. Like they had bread, they had olives, they had salt fish, they had four or five ingredients, and these things were all being pulled out of the sea, baked at home right there, and they were delicious. And I think that was what really taught her about the important, about how simple food can be and how good, which is her sort of defining strength. Yeah, and it it definitely carries into the book today. Mm -hmm. I do want to mention that the biography read was written by Artemis Cooper, who we just realized before we hit recording, that is Anthony Beaver's wife. Isn't that incredible? I mean, that's wild. That's crazy. (laughs) I'm actually looking at her like Google page, her Wikipedia page, and uh, she is, her title is Lady Beaver. (laughs) <laughs> FRSL, so couldn't imagine anything better than that. So definitely go check out the Artemis Cooper biography. Yeah, she's she's written a bunch of biographies. She's a great biographer. So I was I was excited to see that Elizabeth David was going to be by her. Yeah, but as we said, talking about sort of that whole foods aspect that defined David, it, this also goes to the cover photo, which we also will talk about in every episode. On the cover is cherries, strawberries, and peas, which is a fairly self-explanatory painting by Giovanna Garzoni. 
It represents Whole Foods in a straightforward manner, but a lot of craft went into creating it. In that way, it does seem like a nice compliment to David's work. Did you have any reaction to the to the cover, Valerie? Well, I don't know if I can say this, but to be honest, I thought it was kind of boring. Ooh. <laughs> what would you rather seen? I don't know, but it's just like, I think, I and I, you know, this is a probably a criticism of me as opposed to a criticism of the cover, but I think we're used to food porn images and things that are really glamorous and you go, oh my gosh, look at that. Mm. And this is subtle, it's simple, and there's a lot of white space, the fruit is small. And uh, I mean, I think that decision by the designer of the book was probably very deliberate and it, it expresses the spirit of the book very well, but you know, my jaded modern eyes glazed right over it. Oh man, I loved this cover, I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> we want to talk more about the imagery of food later when we get yeah. into the meat of the discussion. Okay. Is that pun intended? It wasn't, but I'll take the credit. <laughs> I want to talk also a little bit before we go on about Garzoni herself. She was like a uh, Renaissance painter and painted a lot for the Medici family. And there's an interesting point in her career where it seems like she transitioned to mainly doing still lifes of fruit and food. And I would recommend just going through a Google image or portfolio, a book of hers. Her stuff's great. I love it. Cool. So when we were at your dinner party a few weeks back, we were talking with a friend of yours about Elizabeth David. And she, from memory, was able to quote one of the more famous lines from this book, which is, the grotesque prudishness and archness with which garlic is treated in this country, she means England, has led to the superstition that rubbing the bowl with it before putting the salad in gives sufficient flavor. It rather depends whether you're going to eat the bowl or the salad. So I think that's wow. pretty, pretty representative of her kind Wait, of witty who archness. Who knew that? Was it Victoria Grenoble? That was Victoria. Yeah, Victoria yes. Grenoble. <laughs> I mean, she's an incredible food stylist and genius food person. So um, that's, that's, that's great. I'm so tickled to hear that. I missed that moment. I know. I mean, it, it, but it just kind of shows the power of her words and her aphorisms. Mm -hmm. Why do you think David is still read and quoted to this day? Oh, you know, let's see. It's going to make, take me one second here, but I had a somebody, one of her contemporaries, I had a line from the book that someone said about her. Yeah, of course. Okay, here it is. I am not sure who said this, but he said she was so funny, so cynical. Her language was pretty rich, too. And no one could bullshit her when it came to food. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I, to, to be more serious, I think that she really had an unerring eye for what was important. And mm. you can see that both in the way she wrote her recipes and in the way she wrote. But I think the sort of essence of her writing was that she was evoking, she was telling you to eat this food for its taste, for its scent, for its visual appeal, and for the joy that it brought you. And I think that it was, her work was always sort of laser focused on that. And that can mean many different things. It can mean describing it. It can mean telling you the utensils you need. It can be telling you the spirit in which you should eat it. It can be telling you to throw aside English convention when it comes to garlic and try this, but she always had a extremely well-edited vision of what this work was supposed to be doing. And that's pretty rare. I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. she was very, very talented as a writer and 
her work has lasted. Sure. Knowing more about her like upbringing, where do you think she got that sense of like self-confidence, a commitment to her vision? Is that something she developed over time or did she just sort of always have that? Huh, that's a great question because, you know, I mean, she was a rebel and she was very much a rebel. Like she mm-hmm. left her family. She didn't want to be a part of the sort of horsey upper class English world that she was born into. Um, she ran off with this working class writer man. That's who she was on the sailboat with at a time when she was supposed to be getting married. She wasn't supposed to be running off and having sex with a man. So (laughs) what made her different and made her able to sort of escape the fate that some of her sisters did not escape? Who knows? I don't, but it's admirable. Sure. David's cookbook, as you said, she is a rebel. Her cookbook diverges from the current norm in several ways. One is that she assumes a reader is already fairly knowledgeable about cooking. How do you think her approach to recipe writing compares to your own? Uh Uh-huh. You know... (laughs) She makes me feel good because I try, but this is this food column is a big production where I'm reading books, I'm writing essays, we're taking pictures. And I often worry that my recipes and the recipes are not necessarily tested any more than the one time that I test them. So I often worry that I have no idea what I assume that people won't realize. And, uh, you know, I, I do my best, but... I like seeing her recipes and how well they work, despite how sort of narrative and undetailed they are in many ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, I mean, you guys tried the food, you saw it, and they, all those recipes worked beautifully. They Mm -hmm. were all delicious. And I mean, I have a fair amount of background knowledge that I can understand what's being written and make calls. And maybe it would be harder for a less experienced cook. But I also think she's telling you the right way to do it. She's like, take a handful of something, like, you know, make this dish your own. She doesn't, I mean, she doesn't say make the dish your own, but the gaps that she leaves in the recipes and the lack of specificity is kind of like, look, just cook it, which which is the right way to cook. Sure, just cook it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, her, her style does encourage the chef or the cook. Mm-hmm. Um, and she kind of tells you, yes, you, you can do this, where I do think that some modern cookbooks sort of are a little bit more timid. They encourage a kind of timidness or, or assume that, that the cook is afraid to cook. And I think she's just like, to hell with that, you know, get on with it. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's better because the fact is that ingredients are different and flavors are different. And, you know, one handful of parsley is going to taste completely different from another handful of parsley. So, you know, Mm. really you should be tasting and you should be eyeballing and you should be doing what makes sense to you in the moment. And that takes a little bit more confidence. It's safer and more relaxing to say a tablespoon of this, a teaspoon of that. And she does that sometimes, but, um, and sometimes she does that very specifically. She says exactly a tablespoon of this, Mm -hmm. which shows you that she can do it when she thinks it's important. And when she doesn't think it's important, she's loose. So, you know, I mean, they're, they're, the recipes themselves, the way they're written and the way they work. uh, I mean, you could probably like do an academic study of that because it's very, very successful. Yeah, I feel like the way people cook now, they seem to be very reliant on following every detail exactly. And there isn't a ton of flexibility. And it probably says something about like our culture, the way we think or how we're 
we just spend less time in the kitchen maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I sort of have realized is that vegetables, I think used to be smaller. So, mm-hmm. I mean, when I was just starting to cook, you would get, you would get something where it was like, I remember making, I mean, this is actually after I had started to cook, but I was making a vegetable puree for my daughter for some reason. And it said like, you know, a leek, a tomato, a this and that. And by the time I had put all those things together, I had like four quarts of vegetable puree, which is so much more than I would have ever wanted. But, you, mm. you know, you, you, as an inexperienced cook, you sort of follow the letter of the recipe, often very much to your own detriment. And you would be much better off, even when you don't know what you're doing, if you just said, okay, how much of this do I want? Like, let me look at this quantity of vegetables and see, you know, even visually, how much do I want to make a puree? Like I, you know, a leek could be any size from, I mean, six cups to a half a cup. And people aren't used to using their own judgment in in these cases. Yeah, yeah. I really need to be walked through a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Dylan is probably not David's ideal cookbook reader. no. (laughs) <laughs> I'm trying though. I'm getting there. We, we should have tested Dylan on the cooking day. We should have. We should have. We should have. have, have yes. Seen but... if Elizabeth David would work even for Dylan. <laughs> we'll we'll have to do a follow up maybe yeah. to this episode and see yeah. if that works. <laughs> yeah, I f- I sometimes feel like people distrust their own senses. Like they don't eat with their own mouth. Like. Yeah. And Elizabeth David just really flies in the face of that. Mm-hmm. And it, it drew my attention to things that I had like kind of already suspected about food and about cooking and articulated it in a way that I haven't seen. There's, there is a lot of great food writing, but I, had not, I hadn't seen her precise vision executed before. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Um, it's very distinctive. So another way that this book is a little different than what we're used to these days is that it lacks images. And we talked a little bit about this before, but this might be seen as a refreshing contrast to, you know, the advent of the celebrity chef and to Instagram culture and little like 50 second cooking videos that you could watch like on the subway. But also for me, it made some of the dishes which I may be unfamiliar with, kind of harder to visualize, harder to comprehend, just looking at text on the page. Mm-hmm. What do you see as the role of photography in food writing, food culture? How do you navigate that in your own column? Huh. I mean, that's a really interesting question. First of all, uh, something that I was interested in reading the biography was to discover that I think all these, I think these books did originally have illustrations and there was various drama and sort of weirdness involving the history of the art. Her book, Italian Food, she had commissioned some Italian painter who was known at the time, although not known to me. And there were huge arguments with her publisher over whether or not they were going to use his work. And she was fiercely attached to it. And then eventually sort of moving between publishers, somebody lost the originals. So the person who originally illustrated Summer Cooking, I think the illustrations got dated and she might have never liked them, but I'm, I'm not sure why they're not in this book. I mean, I was, I was oh, no. curious to go look up what the original art was because there was some art, but we can also be sure that it wasn't photography and it wasn't this kind of lavish and exciting food porn kind of pictures that we now all enjoy all the time. 
Are th- aren't there some illustrations like on the first page of a different chapter? I'm flipping. Are there some illustrations? It's been a while since I looked at it. Yeah, you you, you guys kindly uh, loaned me your book, and now I have it. Uh, there are no illustrations <laughs> in here in the, in, in the NYRB. Uh, oh wait, oh oh no, there are there are. Here's one. Yeah, there were few and far between. There's certainly not like what sticks in your mind when you put the book down. No, they didn't. Well, so so yeah, so maybe these are the original illustrations that supposedly dated, or she wasn't crazy about. They look very nice to me. They don't look dated. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably, I mean, sort of off the cuff, I think it's probably, you know, another sort of element of our unhealthy, you know, sort of consumerist culture that we now expect our food to be Instagram worthy at all times. There's actually a really interesting food writer named Rachel Alice Roddy. She writes Mm -hmm. um, for The Guardian, maybe she's she's based in Rome. She's amazing. She writes for a newspaper in England. Her recipes are great. And her pictures on Instagram are very, I mean, I, I've, I've always wondered why they look like this because they're not pretty. Like they, they look, <laughs> they look like food, you know, shot. So they, they don't, I mean, they don't look like Yelp reviews necessarily, but it's not the glamour shot that you come to expect. And I've always wondered if she does that to sort of push back a little bit on the cover shot food culture that we now have, because you do wonder if it's, if it's the right way to approach your meal. Right. How did you develop your own kind of approach to it? Because I think your column has a very distinct visual style and it does, you know, the the pictures aren't overwhelming. They're a nice complement to the writing, but I feel like the writing is the main course, so to speak. Well, I mean, I have an amazing photographer for my column, Erica McLean, and she is primarily a fashion and sort of music photographer. And she is a friend of mine and uh, does the column for me. Uh, basically as a favor to me. So I think what I liked about Erica's work when I first saw it was that it was really playful and it had an enormous amount of energy. And uh, she looked like she was taking a creative approach. And she had some food as like props and stuff, even in her fashion work. So I could sort of see what she was going to do with the food. And I felt like it would, what I'm doing with food is something that's a little bit unexpected. And I felt like her pictures would also be a little bit unexpected in the same way. So it's it's been a great it's been a great fit. Yeah, you guys seem to have a good collaboration. We had the pleasure of watching you work and you had a you had a, a vision for what you wanted a picture to be at times. You'd be like, I'm gonna pull these green leaves out and put them here with the berries and cream in the book, mm-hmm. or I'm gonna put the book on its side or have these this shelf in the background. Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. a good repartee there. But I also, I totally defer to Erica when it comes to visual stuff too, because I'm, that's not my main skill. So I'll ask her and, you know, I've also learned from her not to put too many leaves in the background. Like my, my, uh, (laughs) like as I've gone on, I've learned, especially with food shop photography that you don't want a lot of accessories, like usually the thing that you're taking the picture of, the plate whatever's on the plate, that's going to be the star of the picture and you don't need to do much more. Sure. Right. Yeah. There was a, there was a edited out picnic basket. Uh-huh. I remember that yeah. may have ended up, but it didn't. No, nope. Erica edited out the picnic basket. Yes, she did. <laughs> <laughs> Although I want to say that I had, you know, one of the things Elizabeth David says in the picnics chapter is if you have an Edwardian picnic basket, that's ideal. And, um, (laughs) you know, you can bring, she suggests that you bring your own cutlery and 
plates, like she doesn't believe in disposable plates and cutlery, even for a picnic. And you can pack those things in your Edwardian basket. And uh, as a matter of fact, I had an Edwardian picnic basket that we could have used as a shot. So it's amazing. Perfect, but it was too big and Erica said no. Yeah. <laughs> it was a really nice picnic basket though. Yeah. When we talk a bit about this sort of visual aspect of food, when I think about some of more or less the contemporaries to David, I remember I, during COVID, when I wanted to cook more with my mom, we bought like a pasta maker and we got, we wanted to make a lot of breads. I decided to go out and buy Marcella Hazan's classic Italian cooking. Mm-hmm. And I remember opening that with my mom and being like, oh, there's no pictures and there's very <laughs> little instructions. It's very much like David. It's uh-huh. written in prose more or less. And it reminds me of someone like Hazan or Child. These are very lasting books that brought finer cuisine into the home. But how in your mind does Elizabeth David compare to those two or any others that you would know about? Huh, interesting. You know, Marcella Hazan, I cook from that cookbook all the time. I love that cookbook. It's so good. Yeah, I mean, I think these are the giants of food writing because they write recipes that really work. I'm not as familiar with Julia Child personally mm-hmm. in my house, but the Marcella Hazan stuff, like you go back to it again and again and again, and it's always fantastic. And I think I was surprised with Elizabeth David because because these recipes, because it's summer cooking, it's it's stuff that's not necessarily easily accessible or accessible all the time. I mean, she's talking about the fresh produce of the English countryside. There's a lot of sorrel, which we can only get here for a couple of weeks a year. There's gooseberries, which is a you know, again, a couple of weeks on the market and it's gone. So, you know, in some ways it's inaccessible. Yeah. It seems like it could be inaccessible, but then when you start cooking from these recipes, you're like, this is fantastic. It's so easy. It's so clear. I, I think the, the, the definition of, of a great food writer is that the recipes work. One of the things I just, that came to mind in thinking about them is that the art of French cooking, it's like two volumes. It's a massive tome. The Hazan books are pretty bulky as well. Yes. And this is a slim little book that you can <laughs> carry around or like put in your purse. And it's like she's pared it down to the essentials, to what yeah. people would actually maybe reasonably make. There are some more far-fetched things in here, don't get me wrong. But um, they are her essentials. Because mm-hmm. like to her, a little bit of luxury was kind of a part of the joy of life. Right. You take your own culture used to picnics, so. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure that it's as, un- I mean, it's, it seems unreasonable to us because making aspic is scary. And mm-hmm. I, I, said, mm-hmm. I think in an early conversation about this, I said, I'm not ever trying aspic again because I've tried a couple of times and I can't get it right. But after, I mean, at, in her time, aspic was practical because you poured it over the top of a terrine or some meat and it preserved the meat. So it was a way to preserve meat without refrigeration yeah. or you know, longer in less refrigerated conditions. And I would be curious to try her aspic recipe and see if it makes it right. I wish I had at this point because now I have such faith in her that I think these things were both luxurious and practical. And that was her point. Mm. I hope you do try it. Yeah, and let us know how it goes. I will. I, I, when I wanted to talk about like some of the bare essentials, I love how she, at the very end, when you were talking about the picnic section, she takes a lot of these more fanciful meals and she pairs it down to how to make it in like a in a picnic in like a very casual setting in a very movable setting. That was probably my favorite part of the book because it was such a surprise to me. I didn't see that coming. 
Yeah, yeah. No, there was the shooter's sandwich in the picnic section, which was... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many things you want to try that you don't get to try. I mean, we tried some amazing things, but, you know, it's like you take a sandwich loaf and you stuff a hot steak from a grill into it, along with some grilled mushrooms. <laughs> And then you wrap the loaf in a double sheet of clean white blotting paper, tie with twine both ways, wrap some grease paper around it so it doesn't get your pocket dirty, you know, and then put a weight <laughs> on top of it and let it sit there for at least six hours. So I guess you make it <laughs> uh, this is a, it's a fantastic practical sandwich for all kinds of emergencies. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's something else that runs throughout the book is like this, sense of the way that food fits into life and that food is a part of life. Like there was one part where she's like, uh, if you need a resilient potato recipe, like this is a good one. <laughs> I don't necessarily see that vantage point elsewhere. And, and yet it's so useful to think about like, oh, I, I do need a resilient potato salad that's going to like, I can make it on Saturday and then also have it for lunch three days later or something. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's very, she was very concerned with how it fit into life in a practical way. And another thing that I actually think is particularly good for now is she was, I mean, for her time, she was considered not concerned with economy because there had been rationing and she was still saying, you know, go out and get eggs and cream. And, you know, when these books came out, people couldn't get eggs and cream. Sure. So in some ways it was not practical, but she does very often talk about economy and about cheap cuts of meat. And I mean, good cuts of meat have gotten so expensive here that, I mean, they're, they've become beyond reach for me as a regular weekday meal. Like I'm not going to buy, mm -hmm. food. I'm not going to buy, I mean, you know, you can look at fish and it's $47 for a pound of fish. Like it's, it, the prices even you know, in groceries have gone crazy. So yeah. a lot of her, here's something you can do with a cheap cut stuff is really useful. Like it's become mm -hmm. really useful. I mean, almost every section talks about economy in different ways, which is, is appreciated. Definitely. It's relevant. Mm -hmm. And I didn't write a question about this, but it's occurring to me now. Julia Child is, you know, associated with French food, French cuisine. Marcella Hazan with Italian. Elizabeth David I think of her as English and as having like having the air of an English woman of her time, but her food is like kind of multinational. She didn't limit herself to English cuisine. She bucked a lot of traditions that other lesser cooks may have adhered to. Is that something you that occurred to you when you were preparing the column is like her relationship to national food? Yeah, I mean, that was what was so groundbreaking about her and why she's the canonical figure that she is is because she really introduced the English to French food, Italian food, Mediterranean yeah. food. Like this was a she was writing at a time when I mean it's very funny actually because she, you know, she was all around the Mediterranean and so she had the experience of those cultures to inform her first cookbook. And then for her second cookbook they said, okay, let's sort of do that again in bringing these, at the time, totally exotic and unknown cuisines to England. And they said, why don't you go and explore the cuisine of Italy? And she didn't know much about Italy. And the English didn't know much about Italian food. And her friends were making fun of her before she left on her reporting trip and saying, you're going to have to make up recipes because they don't have any food in Italy. In Italy? Yes! <laughs> yeah. That seems crazy to, I think, a modern cook. 
Well, exactly. And as a matter of fact, pizza wasn't even famous yet. Like she writes about yeah, yeah. that Neapolitan specialty and has to describe what it is. <laughs> um, so That's amazing. There's also actually kind of an interesting footnote that I'm not completely clear on, but I think she has been criticized maybe in the past decades, some for in some ways derailing English food culture. And instead of focusing on what England did and elevating it, she kind of turned everybody outwards to we want French, Mm -hmm. we want Italian. Like she was an incredibly powerful influence on that turn of events in English cuisine and English cuisine itself. To some extent, you know, I mean, the cliche is that it languished until, you know, the gastropub 25 years. Sure. Um, <laughs> and some of that might be Elizabeth David's fault. People have said that. <laughs> yeah, I could see. I mean, she was like a rootless figure in food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know. Food kind of benefits from this tension between like tradition and then learning from the people who come through the port or, or from chefs who go abroad and, and study elsewhere. Right. And there's this like conversation between cultures. Yeah, I feel like when we watch like Top Chef or something, it's either they have to say like, this is a very traditional meal or this is a fusion meal. It's like, it's sort of that dichotomy right there. But she was doing an incredibly important original research. So yeah. you know, her stuff came from, I learned this from a person who made it in a traditional way. And a lot of, I think a lot of her work on, the cooking vessels and stuff like I this is again from the biography but she has important like her archives are important in understanding how people cooked and what they made because she 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 had drawings done of these things like she was kind of going through the countryside as people were transitioning away from traditional methods and scooping up all this information about what the people had been doing so it's not you know she wasn't making up French inspired dishes. She was getting her French dishes from a French woman who'd been doing it forever. Yeah. So I think we, and this has been evident from our discussion thus far, but like it's her philosophy and personality that we remember her for as much as for the meals themselves. What do you think about like this injection of personality in food? Like how much of, of a cookbook is the person that created it versus kind of the food it's representing. Well, see, I think that's so interesting because when you look at Elizabeth David's actual writing, it's very austere and she uses personal examples, not really that often. And some are cooking supposedly more so than her earlier works. Like she Mm -hmm. is not, she, she was mysterious and she did not put like, I think her her vision is on the page, but her personal life is not necessarily. And that's something that's really changed. That is true. I think it's probably an explanation for why her work really hasn't dated and why it feels mm-hmm. so fresh and original right now is because she really was focused on the food in a way. And this kind of like, you know, let me tell you about how I made this for my husband and we liked it for this right. Like that stuff is yes. really fun to read on the internet, but it's not writing that's going to last. Yeah. Right. Yes. I, I hadn't quite put my finger on that, but that is completely accurate. I mean, her opinions are there, but they're opinions about food. They're not opinions about 
Um, my mom made this for me when I was six after <laughs> like I have skinned my knee and I felt so much better after. And now here, reader, I give it to you. Right. She's just like, uh, salmon's really overused and it's kind of gross. So let's not eat it as much. <laughs> <laughs> That's literally the end of Ratatouille. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's again, it's this sort of simplicity and focusing on what's important because if you have to tell a big anecdote, I mean, and you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I can think of food bloggers who I love, whose personal anecdotes about how their son ate their chocolate cake are my favorite things. But in a way, if you have to tell the whole story of how somebody ate the chocolate cake, you're, you're gilding the lily and she never gilded the lily. Yes. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, it's not like it's always bad, but it is a unique way. Mm -hmm. Was there anything going through the book that you were you read and you were like, I just flat out would not cook that way or that you were intimidated <laughs> by? Well, we talked about the aspic. Yeah. Right, right. I now have come around and I'm like, I actually really should try aspic again. That's huge. You know, I mean, we made that the rabbit terrine, which is another thing yes. that I was... Uh, it is scared to do because I've had a trouble making rabbit good before. And uh, you guys didn't get to try the terrine, but the terrine is ridiculous. It's so good. And oh, it smelled amazing. It it's did. So good. It's so good. Um, I've been like frying up pieces of it and serving it on bread. And it's just, it's, oh. it's incredible. That's almost like the, the picnic where it says to put the terrine into a sandwich. Right. Yeah, that's that's why I, had cho I, I was originally choosing the terrine as something that could be eaten by hand for a picnic kind of theory. So yeah, I mean, I guess I was intimidated by several things that I now feel confident about. That's huge. I, f I feel like throughout your column, you if if you ha have fear of something, that that's what makes you choose it almost. <laughs> You're so I love you guys for having read it and like understanding it. Um, it's very it's that's really true. I mean, I don't know why I'm like that, but that's that's if it sounds challenging or weird, I want to cook it and see what see how it's going to go. You're a bit yes. of Elizabeth David yourself. You're adventurous, <laughs> and I would totally bring glass cutlery and plates and stuff on my picnic. So let's go. <laughs> And you already have the picnic basket. <laughs> I mean, I'm a, I'm a server of plated dinners to 35 people in my own home sure. on actual yes. China with silver and everything else and napkins. So I'm I I did feel a kindred spirit with Elizabeth David. Sure. When when was the last time you had a picnic? A picnic. When did you guys last have a picnic? You know what? During COVID, I bought a picnic basket at Home Depot. And like went out and purposefully like had a picnic by myself in a park. <laughs> That's so <cool. laughs> with like roast, you know, cold roast chicken from the day before that I made just purely so I could have it left over for the picnic. <laughs> That's incredible. Cassie and I had a picnic on a mountaintop one time too. That was really fun. Oh, in Valle Caldera? Yeah, in the Valle Caldera. Okay. Yeah, that was delicious. There's this like hollowed out volcano in, in New Mexico where now what was once the top of the volcano is now like an open meadow. And so Cassie and I went out there and I made some turkey and ham sandwiches and watched our dog run around. It was it was great. That was a great day. That sounds lovely. People need to picnic more. That's kind of why I asked the question. 
Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm, I have children and I'm always feeding children. Like I'm a person who doesn't like to buy food and doesn't like to go to restaurants and I would, you know, I wouldn't eat at rest areas. So like, I'm always bringing our food with us to eat in a uh, utilitarian way that we need to eat this food or else we'll be hungry and we won't have eaten something nutritious. So, I mean, I have to say that we were standing in line at like a Starbucks at a rest area on our way between New York City and Vermont where my kids and I spend the summer and I was eating some grilled salmon out of a plastic bag that I had brought with me. Wow. And my dog was like, you're so disgusting. You're always doing that. You're always eating some fish out of a bag. And I was like, it's true. It's true. So that's my picnic. It's not good. Some salmon sounds really good right now, though. <laughs> I don't know if Elizabeth David would approve. No, no. But, but sometimes you just have to eat from a bag. Like... <laughs> It's better than McDonald's, probably. It's an excellent piece of fish, and I cooked it well. I think Elizabeth David would approve of that over McDonald's. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Talking about, like, this conceptualization of of the meal that we've kind of talked about and that you're going to be writing up in your column, what made you choose those certain things for the menu? What went into choosing the menu from the book for you? I mean, I think you guys already sort of understood me when you said that I like to choose things that I think are challenging. Sure, Um, sure. But in that case, I was trying to choose food that I, you know, I did not choose dishes from her picnic section, but I thought that the picnic section was sort of the heart of the book in some ways. And so I was trying to choose things for an imaginary picnic of my mind. And, you know, I, I had chose a chilled soup and a dessert with a, uh, cream that would have had to be kept cold. So these are things you couldn't do them if you were hiking to the top of a, a volcano, but you could sure. if you were bringing it to the park in a thermos. So I, w- I was kind of choosing spread it out on a blanket and let people sit around and eat this like casual summer food. That, that's yeah, what was yeah. in my mind. Luckily, you drive to the top of the volcano, so <laughs> a little bit better. <laughs> I, the, when you talk about something that challenges you, I the, out of all the things we were going to do, the most the thing I was most nervous about was a cold soup because I don't think I've ever had a cold soup really. But gotta say that that cold soup was incredible. I could not believe how good it was. It really was, and one of my favorite. I mean, I also picked that because I was like cold haddock soup. Like, what could that possibly be? Or iced haddock soup, I think is how it she put it, and I thought that sounded gross. But that's, <laughs> and you know, you know, it's not going to be gross, but you're like, how is that going to work? And that, that always does exactly. give me the spark. But uh, one of the things that I thought was most interesting about that was that she specified not to salt that soup, which, yes, you know, only to pepper, right? Uh, only to pepper. And that's just Incredible. so specific. And I mean, this is the thing where you say, well, she doesn't give you specific instructions about so many things, but then sometimes there's a specific instruction and the, the like, I mean, that soup was incredibly flavorful, but also incredibly delicate. And I think she was right that adding more salt would have spoiled it. Like, you know, the smoked fish is a little salty. The pickles are a little salty. You don't need anything more. And just the eye on the ball that she had to draw that line was brilliant. Yeah. I remember you were, you were a little like trepidatious about there was maybe only two tablespoons of the fish and you were worried that maybe the flavor of it wouldn't come through, but it, it completely like once it came together, I don't know if you did add more, but it tasted present. 
Yeah. Yep. It was perfect. We didn't add more. Um, we did decrease the pickle amount. Oh, right. Right. And I think that was the right call. I'm going to say that. <laughs> I agree. I agree. But I think that that's, that just shows that you're such a sophisticated user of recipes that yeah. you have that ability to be like, I'm not sure that's going to work for me. Right. And then you, you know the line of like, I'm going to obey even though I don't really know right. versus I am going to overrule you, right. Elizabeth David. And, and I think that's probably how Elizabeth David picked up a, a recipe book as well. Right. And pickles are another one of those ingredients that can be so incredibly different. So, you know, sure. I would buy those pickles. And if they were my Russian mother-in-law's homemade pickles, they would be much more mild and you could use a cup of them. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the most important points I've learned in cooking is that when I have an intuition, I should listen to it and I shouldn't say, well, that seems weird, but the recipe told me so. Okay. Cause that's yeah. wrong. <laughs> I will say for those wondering what cold or ice haddock soup tastes like, the best way Cassie and I could describe it is it tastes a lot like a, a lox bagel, bagel, but like in the most pure, beautiful, like sophisticated sing- way, sophisticated singular form of it, and it was shocking how good it was. I wish you guys I'm so glad we got to try that. I wish our listeners could see the two of your beautiful smiles as you recall the soup because you. <laughs> The whole meal. We had such a good time with it. Thank you for saying that. And the, uh, I'd never seen a terrine put together. Like that's something that would have intimidated me flipping through the book, but it it seemed like relatively easy. Yes. How it it just got got like, you whipped it up in a bowl and pressed it into a a container and like, voila, there it was. That was a big shocker to me too. Exactly. I mean, it's, that's the thing where you're like, oh, these dishes that we're not used to, are incredibly practical. We're just not used to them. Sure. Yeah. Like it's one of those things when when we were shopping, I have that feeling that I sometimes get with like my mom when I help her cook on like a a holiday with like a big meal. It's like, all right, this is the rest of the day. This is everything I'm going to pour my heart and soul in. It'll taste great. It'll be worth it. But like, I need to be prepared. And like a couple hours later, it's like, oh, it's done already. Oh, yeah. It was incredible. Yeah, yeah. Elizabeth David is a legend. That also, I mean, this is another, I mean, I, I know, another great endorsement of Elizabeth David and how good her recipes are is, I mean, I write this up for the Paris Review column, and I often have paragraph after paragraph of instructions on what to do. And I, I did not take her recipes word for word. I did sort of put them into my own format. And, you know, it's also a, you know, mm-hmm. a rights thing. It's better to do it that way if I'm going to put them up online as I've adapted them. But uh, it was each one is like three or four lines. Like there's nothing to it. But, yeah. And we, we experienced that cooking that food because it came together so easily and quickly. It was like a summer day. Yes, it was. <laughs> Beautifully said. You have said before that you often feel the writers present with you while you're cooking from their books. Did David intervene in the process of preparing the meal? Uh, I mean, I guess we all experienced that she did because, I mean, in two ways, yes. Uh, You know, I feel that the meals almost always have a spirit. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I was really surprised by what that food tasted like in the end because I think we all have the cliche of simple food and peasant food. And you're going to any trendy restaurant and you're going to be getting something you know, whole animal, nose to tail, farm to table, like you have all of these ideas of how the food that you're eating is 
from a simpler time or simple, supposedly. And I don't think I really knew what simple was until eating her spread. Like, I thought that was very distinctive in, oh, okay, here are these flavors. They're quiet, but they're both quiet and luxurious and brilliant at the same time. And the amount of things that were uncooked and the amount of things that were put together with only a few ingredients, it really made a difference and it taught me something about simplicity. And also, you know, she had this, it would be wrong to say she was, she wasn't familiar with her readers. She wasn't saying, let's have fun guys. But (laughs) her ethos was she wanted to have a great meal and enjoy herself. Yes. And we enjoyed ourselves cooking that food. It was not stressful. It did not take long. She taught us how to do the things she liked to do. Yes. If she was with us at all, I felt like it was her sort of sitting at the table watching us going like, yeah, I know it's good. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I was right. Yeah, she likes to be right. <laughs> she was. She, was. she really was. Things, so. I felt like that salad was almost like a dark horse standout because it was like romaine lettuce with this kind of vinegary creamy dressing with some cut up egg white mm-hmm. which is just, just like so bare top. bones kind of a little bit strange you're like i don't know about this but it added such freshness yeah. to the plate mm-hmm. i know should we say the full menu real quickly that so people know Sure, we can say that. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. we'll also, okay. uh, you know, it's it's going to be all up online and on on the Paris Review with great pictures and and recipes. So go check it out. There. McLean and recipes, and uh, so we had we had the summer hors d'oeuvre, which was the first recipe in the book, I think, and it's not even a recipe. She says, "Go to the market and get all these fresh things and put them on the table with." salt and pepper and olive oil and let people, you know, nosh basically. And that was a way that she really liked to set her table. So we did that with radishes and cherry tomatoes and uh, hard boiled eggs, all things she specified. Then we had the cold haddock soup, although we used smoked trout because smoked haddock was not available to us. And we've talked about that. We did the salad, which like Cassia just said, was a dark horse and seemed how is that going to really work? And also mm-hmm. in its simplicity. And and it was, only, it was only two colors. It was green and it was white. Like, yeah, just yeah. Perfect. So we had the, the salad. We had the terrine. I'm missing something. What am I missing? The berries, berries and cream. The dessert, was it only four? Nope, that was it. So there were four. And then the last one was the geranium cream, which... It was another thing that I did because it sounded interesting. And I always loved the scent of geranium leaves when I was a child that I didn't know you could cook with them. So she says, Mm. it's five ingredients. It's heavy cream, sugar, geraniums. She specified cream cheese. And it was not really clear what she meant by the cream cheese because she said five or six small cream cheeses with a couple of French names attached. And uh, we ended up trying mascarpone and Philadelphia cream cheese and the Philadelphia cream cheese was, was the winner. Um, but- that was one of the most shocking moments for us. <laughs> I think of the day when we whipped it up and we each had a taste test and I was the only one that went mascarpone. <laughs> yeah, you were the sole dissenter. <laughs> my palate is toast right now. What <laughs> a bad beat for me. Right. So then, so you basically, you infuse the, the cream, the sugary cream with geranium overnight and then 
mix in the cream cheese and top blackberries with it. And I thought that was stuff was so good. I've been putting it mm-hmm. in my yogurt all week because I we had leftovers. Hell yeah, I bet. And you know, the geranium flavor again was like really subtle and incredibly special. Yes. Added a special touch. Mm-hmm. It really did. Finally though, there is this idea that food writing is somewhat of a red herring and that we're not really writing about food, but are there something else when we talk about it? Do you engage with that notion? If so, what do you think David wrote about? And does it differ from what you're exploring in your own column? First of all, I do. I think that in the one sense, we don't want to disrespect food and a perfect meal, a perfect animal that you're eating, a a peach or a cherry or a dish of blackberries, like all of those things are beautiful and special and good in themselves. But especially when you see food in literature, you realize that food can also mean so many more things. I mean, it it always means something else too. It can mean sexuality, it can mean something political, it can mean something about the environment, it can mean something about economics. Like it's networked into almost everything important in human life. And I think Elizabeth David was a person who had experienced a lot of hunger and a lot of privation, you know, both emotional and to some extent the food insecurity kind, but Mm. to a greater extent, she was a person who needed nourishment and that's how she got it. And, uh, you know, there's a scene in the Artemis Cooper book where she's she's older, she's lost like the great love of her life. She's had a stroke. She's had a hard time tasting. Her sense of taste is off and she goes to stay with a good friend in Spain and really feels like her love of life is returned to her by eating a very simple salad. So it's about the salad. It's also not about the salad. Like the salad brought her the kind of joy and uh, nourishment that she needed. Yeah, Elizabeth David just wants to nourish us. (laughs) I think we felt nourished after that meal. I think she did. She did indeed. It's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Valerie, for joining us when we asked you if you might be interested in talking about Elizabeth David on a podcast, we had no idea the the delight that we would be in for. <laughs> well, I do love great. to feed people. I mean, I, you know, my children are always like, stop offering people food. So <laughs> I, I was thrilled to have you guys over. And, you know, it's always, it's always more fun when you can feed people rather than eating alone. So thank you. I really just want to cook more from the book now. I know. I am so hungry. I cannot tell you. It is only, we're just under four o'clock and I'm already at like dinner hunger because of talking yeah. about all that stuff. Well, look, I don't think that we want to be done cooking from this book yet. I don't think we've no. tapped all that there is to enjoy within it. I'm sure as so, soon as we get our book back, we're going to be digging into it immediately. So I think we're going to continue to cook from it when this episode is released and post about it on our various social media sites. And we would love listeners if you did the same and sent us your pictures and shared them. As we have said, it's easy. It's delicious. It's cost effective in many cases. There's absolutely no reason not to. Yeah. Should we have a hashtag like summer of David? Oh, I kind of like that. Hashtag Summer of David. After this episode comes out, let's say until the end of August before quote unquote fall starts. 
Right. And people people might be listening to this episode, you know, well into the future. And if that's, that's the a case, good point. you can still have a summer of David, even if it's the winter. If anyone... If, and as, if you live in the Southern Hemisphere, you're perfect for that. That's true. So if you if you ever post a, a picture of you cooking out of this book, use it hashtag Summer of David, and we will uh, give it a retweet. We'll give it a shout out. We'll love to see what you guys post. And you are welcome to join, even if you're hashtag averse or or social media averse. For sure. Send us an email. We would love that. We love email. But yeah, no, I just had so much fun like getting to work with Valerie on this, having read her column for a long time and admired her. The fact that we actually like saw her making it is abs- beyond incredible to Out me. Out of this world. Yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful to her. It's been great. The book is very relevant, as we said, but it's also dated in somewhat like superficial ways. Like there's one part where um, she explains to people what feta cheese is, because at that moment, like it's clearly something highly exotic. And she's like, there's a salty Greek cheese called the feta or something. (laughs) (laughs) That was very funny. And it has two E's. Yes, yes. Yeah, the, the popular ingredients for David's Day versus now is definitely noticeable. Now we can get feta at every Kroger and uh, the rabbit that she would use throughout the book. Very hard to get in this part of the world at this time of. But even like feta cheese, I think of the feta cheese that I had growing up as a kid. It was always crumbles. Yeah. Now we can get it like nice whole. It was always crumbles with like red pepper seasoning, which I thought was delicious at the time. Now I look back in horror that I ate that. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Unburied Books. Our theme music is composed, as always, by the great John Hookstra. You can find us at Twitter and on Instagram at Unburied Books, and as well on Gmail at unburiedbooks at gmail.com if you ever want to send us anything. Yeah, we're going to refrain from saying what the next episode will be because we're not totally sure yet. Schedules but are again, up in the air. We will link our link tree with the Google Doc. Yep. Go out and enjoy your summer of David. Bye.